Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We're here in the throes of a big moment in our country, and we'll today look at another moment in our country when it looked as though we might lose it all, the Great Depression. From her new book called Copy Boy, Shelley Blanton-Stroud will talk with us about grit and all its meanings. Grit is a real thing. Welcome, Shelley. Oh, thank you, Diana. It's so good to be here. We love having you. So grit, it's this indomitable spirit, a pluck. Uh, it describes Jane, who is our protagonist in The Copy Boy. It's a novel. Uh, it's a historical fiction. And I'd say there's a bit of a murder mystery in it um, or a mystery. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, Copy Boy is uh, a runner at a newspaper. So the lowliest of the low. And um, Jane is uh, what Turgenev called a brave man and a good woman. She did dress as a man in order to further herself in her role. Um, Another definition of grit that applies to Jane, the texture of sand or stone used in grinding, the grinding that is the wear and tear of poverty, its relentlessness on a person, Um, Another definition, to clamp your teeth together is grit, to grit your teeth. Mm -hmm. And you have to grit your teeth to bear the grit in the air from the the dust bowl where she grew up and from the dirt that grinds uh, grinds you down. And Jane comes through this with, I think, a significant amount of grit. She's a heroic kind of character that we come to love. And Shelley, I think you've, you've gotten this, you've nailed this uh, story and this oh. character so deeply. Um, and I, I think that it's somehow, you know, reading about you on your website and your biography, it's somehow in your DNA, right? Your origin story. Um, you write with great authority and ease. Uh, was it as easy as it seemed reading it on the page? <laughs> that is such a great question. It has a lot in it. But about um, ease of the prose, I would say, first, I, um, I do tend originally to write long, complicated sentences. And then I work hard to edit out what is not needed because I, as you may find out this morning, I think in the beginning, my ideas are convoluted. And one of the great pleasures for me as a writer is to, in the process of reading and writing, to discover something I think is meaningful. And then the next step is to find the best way to reveal it and share it with other people. And even though my discovery of whatever my ideas are, and in this case, it has a lot to do with the ideas related to grit, in spite of what it takes to get there, that isn't the same as what will be best for my reader to read it. So, yeah, I work very hard after figuring out a story. Uh, I work hard at the process of trying to winnow out 
all of the debris of my thinking and make the sentences easy. Well, so, this is this comes sense. as a it makes perfect sense, and it comes as a big <laughs> relief to me because when I was reading, it was somehow like Frank Sinatra singing. You know, it just feels effortless, <laughs> and I thought to myself. Uh-huh. Wow, she, you know, you can develop a serious case of writer's envy reading your book. Um, oh, I've got a new computer that's chiming. Um, anyway, uh, I do think that um, your character, Jane, she wants to, you know, she's going, she's going to become, she's inhabiting the character, the copy boy. And she wants to write plainly and honestly, which in the end is what you did in this book. Uh, you know, don't say pumice fritus when you can say I'll have a side of fries. You know, um, and this, you know this. This um, answers my question. You know, is this intentional? Because the book has a lot of clarity, and it's very helpful for me to know that you unearth these nuggets. And for anyone that's tried to write even a decent letter or a decent email to get a point across, um, you know, it's great to hear that you extracted and did away with a lot of debris. Uh, at the beginning of the book, Jane copies by typewriter, uh, of course, we're in the 1930s, the prose of a writer that she admires. And it reminded me, um, Cheryl Strayed admitted to doing the same thing when she wrote her memoir, Wild, um, and that she she wrote out the actual words that a writer she admired had written so that she could understand the rhythm, the syncopation, the, you know, the plainness, um, the style of it. And I wondered about that, um, that Jane does this, ironically, or coincidentally. Um, and I wondered, you know, um, you know, whose voice were you kind of going after? Or is this really your voice? Oh, that's well, oh gosh, I'm not sure I can adequately enough answer that. But I will say that where I first learned about it was reading an essay by Joan Didion. And she mentioned doing the same thing. And I'm pretty sure in my memory, she was typing the words of Ernest Hemingway. And I think you can see in Joan, uh, Joan Didion's essays and fiction that there is that kind of DNA of Hemingway in there, a spareness. Her sentences are not short and they're not simple, but nothing in them is unnecessary. And so I got that idea from reading Joan Didion, though I'm certain she got it from, you know, so many other writers before, just as painters have, you know, through the centuries have studied and developed their own painting by copying the masters to learn their moves. But I, um, I think there's a weird... Uh, you know, I think in algorithms lately, I don't think in algorithms, I think of algorithms lately because we hear so much of them in terms of like uh, how Pandora predicts our musical choices and so on by doing these strange algorithms. There's a strange algorithm in, um, in uh, Copy Boy because there's Joan Didion in it because I yes. admire her prose where things are not extra, but there's also... Certainly, my family, with all of their Texas stories and the rhythm and the humor, part of the, their DNA is in there. But also, all these movies, I used to love watching the black mm-hmm. and white movies set in the 30s with the quick-talking 
reporters and cops and that sort right. of thing, and the uh, um, hard-boiled uh, uh, fiction and the noir movies, they're right. all kind of in there in a weird way. And, and I do think one of the things they have in common is um, a sort of disrespect for sloppy talk. Mm-hmm. And so, it's very yeah, crisp. So even though those voices, yeah, even though those voices are very different, they have in common a, you know, a tightness. Yes, it's very, it is very stripped away, stripped down. And I love that all of these influences are present because it is true. Obviously, even visual artists are looking at the brushstroke of another artist and, you know, inspired, you know, appropriating all of that. It's how there's a continuum, right? You know, uh, I think that um, Didion was someone I was really thinking about in reading your book. And I was thinking about Sacramento. Um, where I think mm-hmm. she's from, and I also was thinking yeah. about the plains. You know, in you know, in in the Southwest, yeah. people people don't people speak plainly, and there's that right. very yeah, hardcore, hard boiled, as you say. Not to mention the drinking. I mean, the drinking in this book. <laughs> I I really thought, okay, I I would be a goner right here. You know, they're they've got the flask <laughs> in the desk drawer, and it's not, uh, you know, it's not Sauvignon Blanc. They're drinking whiskey, <laughs> right? You know, and and so I think that also that also cuts down your ability to make like elaborate, you know, convoluted <laughs> sentences. Just got to come out or or, or contribute to it. Who knows? But right. I did actually read. So many histories of uh, 30s era um, reporters, and they are just a really funny lot. And the 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 bourbon or whiskey in the bottom drawer was a steady theme. So that was that got right in there. <laughs> yeah, Herbert Kane. Um, there's no way to describe the book adequately to listeners. I mean, it is a, a multi-layer book, but there is this very strong voice in it in Copy Boy, which is published this month by mm-hmm. She Writes Press, much anticipated. Um, but Shelley, I thought we'd have a proper book talk here and ask you to yeah. please Read a passage, if you'd be so kind. This way, um, people will know what we're talking about, and we won't be talking about it in the abstract. Would you? Oh, great. Right I would love to. I'll read from the very first page. That seems simple. <laughs> Chapter yes. one is called Death. You think you're a body, but you're not. That's just the container you collect in. Your body's a light bulb. If it burns out or breaks, the electricity's still there. You're still there. Still you. Benjamin Franklin Hopper was born into a shattered bulb, shards buried under the loose gray silt of a ravaged Texas plain. But his energy never diffused. For 17 years, he hovered in particles over the heads of his family as they plowed their soil to find, dodging tight-fisted bankers Riding the Oki Trail, Route 66, sleeping under railroad bridges, in lean tos made of potato sacks, flattened tin cans, and orange crates. He hovered as they built a canvas and cardboard home just off the levee at the confluence of two rivers, the Clear American and the Muddy Sacramento. No, he didn't stay underground. 
back in the gray Texas dirt. He rose in a silky cloud and floated over their heads for 17 years, waiting for a shape to fill. Finally, under pressure, his sister cracked. Though she didn't shatter, not yet. That hairline fracture created a vacuum in her, a charged emptiness that siphoned his particles to her, causing a surge to her filament, making her glow. That's how she'd explain it to herself. Thank you so much. It's it's mm-hmm. beautiful. It's beautiful writing, and I, I love the lucidity, the clarity. Here we're hearing the voice of Jane. It's told in the first person uh, through the protagonist, and Jane has been the survivor of twins. Her brother, uh, Ben, died um, in, well, <laughs> childbirth. I'm not going to say another word about it. Um, he died. <laughs> good, good. He, he died, and, um, and she because of her ultra-manipulative mother, bore the brunt of the guilt of survivorship. Um, But she takes that survivorship and she becomes a real survivor. And I think that, you know, what, what our listeners just heard is a real, it's a real incandescence, the way you talk about material and unmaterial things flowing between fluidly between one another, um, actual tangible things and intangible things. And I think that that goes um, throughout the book and reawakens our sense, uh, our sensitivity and our senses to those kinds of phenomenon. Um, I just congratulate you on the achievement of, uh, of writing wow. this book. It's it, for me, it was a great joy um, to to listen to hear and to realize that you know people would look at one another and their eyes would glow and then sparks would fly out and then there'd be a sound. I mean everything. It was almost kinesthesia, like a kind of. Um, I, I wondered. I wondered. You know. I I think that is true. We do feel the strange electricity between people, right? We that's one of the things we're missing um, by being in quarantine. We're we're missing the strange oh electricity of, of being with people, that's the presence, right. the strange oh, feeling Diane, that a, yes. You're absolutely right. And I mean I think about that uh, from my family's storytelling throughout my childhood, because my dad had there were ten siblings in his family. And when we would get together the storytelling would be really, really hysterical and then sometimes dark, sometimes mean. But a big part of it was, um, and, and always love, just together by love, but uh, there was an energy. There was an energy there that isn't quite the same when you're apart. And it's frankly one of the interesting things about that right now is that um, I teach writing in, uh, at Sacramento State University, and we're all online on Zoom. And one of my greatest stresses now is that to the difficulty of finding a way to connect energetically with the individual students in the classroom through a two-dimensional screen. And um, that is going to be, for many of us who teach, it's going to be the hard work of the coming years. And in fact, authors, as you well know, I mean, you're well-placed for this new world because you have a beautiful, thoughtful, subtle way of communicating and connecting with people 
through the phone line. And so you're already good at it. But most of the world is going to have to try to find a way to convey their heart and their energy and their urgency, not in person anymore. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I I do have a complete fiction in my own mind that if I close my eyes and listen, um, that I'm there in the room with the person. So I I think I just fantasize the whole thing. And um, because um, as a writer, you know, you're often very much alone. Um, And I I think, you know, I had a fairly lonely um, childhood. I was, you know, I was an only child. And I think that this whole idea of, you know, I'll I'll take anything, really. (laughs) The phone, the (laughs) microphone, that really, I mean, anything. And, and try to, um, you know, t- telepathically uh, osmos um, a- another person. It's, it is something that, um, you know, we, we are learning, I think, as a skill, you know, as an evolutionary skill right now. We're tuning in right. in ways that we didn't before to one another's voices, to one another's um, expressions, you know, on Zoom. And um, it really, we try to think that there's an, an emotional distance, but actually there isn't if we, you know, allow it to be. Um, I, I really do, we have a couple minutes before the break, and I did want to get into this um, this lovely voice that was inside Jane's head, um, because I do think we communicate with one another internally, um, and sometimes from the grave. It's her brother, Ben, who is deceased, predeceased her at birth, and he he remains in her head, but we're not exactly sure, right? At the very outset of the book, we're not exactly sure. Is that her intuition? Is that her, like, her higher power? Um, and I thought it was fascinating, this voice that you created within her voice. So you must have imagined completely both these characters, Right. Right. I, um, well, first of all, I don't know the answer to it, frankly, so I can't wait for a reader or two to tell me what the answer is. But I always um, pictured a 17 and 18-year-old boy um, who is pretty much 80% id. You know, he has an impulse, he trusts it, he does it. It's like light it on fire, it needs to be lit kind of personality, and which I think 17 and 18 year old boys are brilliant at. And so I felt like he was that voice in her head and maybe he's a part of herself, which she is, um, just, you know, sort of decorating in the skin and hair and clothes of her imagined brother. Or, um, maybe she's schizophrenic. I don't know. Or maybe she, um, maybe she's right. Why can't she be right? That um, that her brother is sort of uh, particles that have been absorbed into her, and he is speaking to her. Um, there's enough. I mean, for crying out loud, Diane, I can't believe we're having this conversation on other sides of the nation from each other. So half of what we do and know now seems like magic a few years ago, and so I believe it is possible that that Ben is talking to her in her head. 
Um, I think that the fact that it's unresolved and left up in the air is one of the real virtues that, you know, we're still deciding it now uh, is so okay. wonderful because I, I do think, you know, if nothing else, it's a kind of a, an archetype. It's something that she yeah. needs for a certain period, whether she created it or not, whether we create or mm-hmm. imagine conversations or not. I can tell you, I have very vivid conversations with my grandmother and now my my recently departed mother. And I, I mean, these things are very real. So we're going to take a break and we're going to come back to the reality of Jane and what she faces in all her <laughs> obstacles. Thanks for being with us, Shelley Blanton-Strout. We'll be back in just a moment. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Shelley Blanton-Stroud, author of a new book called Copy Boy. Copy Boy is, in fact, a girl called Jane, and she makes her way through the world on her grit, her determination, her resourcefulness, and a certain, yeah, an alacrity of, of creative, um, just, you know, intuition, gut feels, and, um, you know, sidewards turns that could go either way. And it's a highly suspenseful, engaging novel. Um, and of course, Jane's ambitious, right, Shelley? This is something yeah. Yeah. unheard, unheard of during the time <laughs> of the Great Depression, a, you know, a young girl who's ambitious. She's going to transcend this god-awful poverty that she's in, which was the condition of many people. Um, and she, right. she feels this pull. Um, and one of the things that I read uh, on your website, which I was fascinated by, was the allure of the Dorothea Lange uh, photographs, which yeah kept lodging in my head as I read your story, as I read Copy Boy, the, the depictions of people's faces, how it's all there, depicted in their face, the, the grit, the land, the dirt, the despair. Um, it's all there. And you were collecting books on Dorothea Lange's photographs and annotating them. 
long before you wrote Copy Boy. Was it something right. like a known unknown um, that was pulling you forward, this imagery? Was it in this intergenerational memory that was pulling you? What do you think drew you to the page here? Um, great question. Um, part of the, you mentioned several things that sort of like lit a little match in me as I was listening. One of them was the intergenerational thing, which has been uh, really important to me uh, doing the research. Like something that almost made it to the epigraph of this book related to um, the way our grandparents' drought, our grandparents' slavery, our grandparents' imprisonment, our grandparents' Poverty works its way into their DNA. And then it's a question of whether those cells, those cells and experiences will express themselves and in what way they will. Or will little doors stay closed? And even, even so, their children inherit that experience in their uh, cells. And one thing or another will cause it to express in a way that makes them gritty versus makes them feel weak and incapable. And through the generations, it is shared. So that intergenerational thing, I think for a long time, I have been fascinated by my relative's history and struggle. And, you know, I grew up in Bakersfield, California, among so many people whose grandparents and parents had come over in the Dust Bowl and had similar experiences and then went off to um, College, Claremont, at the time it was Claremont Men's College. And um, one of the things that really hit me at that age, around 18, was that no one around me really in college had the kind of dusty, gritty background I did. And I went through a phase of feeling that made me less than the people I was around. And then something honoring in me rose up and believed, no, I kind of like that grit that I have inherited. And I want to I dust that grit off. I want to excavate it and know more about it. And even though I know a lot of people with this history who do not want to talk about it because to linger over those disappointments and quote-unquote failures somehow makes them feel less. To me, it feels different. It feels like um, it's a mark of pride that I have family that confronted such things and in one way or another got through it. So I think it was really a as after I graduated from college, when I had more time about what I would, or more freedom about what I would study, I began to be obsessed with Dorothea Lang and her photographs because I, I felt that I was looking at an incredibly artistic version of what my family photographs were like. Mm-hmm. Like a mirror, a mirroring. I, yeah. I really, I really um, am captivated by this idea of your, you know, radical acceptance of the good, the bad, and the ugly. That you didn't mm-hmm. want to, you didn't want to whitewash it, and that when you were among others, you know, at college who were different than you, or didn't have this experience, or had just, you know, shunted it and put it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. 
that you know you you write in the book there's a passage from Jane she's she says um, they wore their normalcy like a skin and I really related to that statement um, because when you do feel other it is really really noticeable the ease with which people move around they don't have mm-hmm. that they don't seem to be encumbered by that uh, memory and as you say it's not necessarily an encumbrance that brings you down it can be an encumbrance that lifts <laughs> up and let's hope right now at this moment you know with black lives matter let's hope it is let's hope it is cellular memory that will help lift people up and um to sort of say um i can use this material i can use this grit Mm -hmm. and we can have a sort of transcendent moment um you're right uh on your website and i really thought this was so um, provocative and thoughtful um, is, is a quote from Shelley Blanton Stroud. It maybe means that some kids growing up in a world that doesn't see them as actual children, bearing the pressure of economics on their backs, will crumble, will never rise up. Maybe it means that other kids in such a world will develop this skill of doing the math, choosing the practical option, even when it does harm too. And this, this is fascinating, yeah. this edge of, you know, it's almost like a ruthlessness, but it's also something that makes such sense if you're going to get further. And, um, you know, I, w- I wanted to sort of it frame it in terms of survivorship um, mm-hmm. and surviving poverty. Uh, is, is it an escape, um, you know, rising above? Is it a personal device, a personal skill set to rise above? Or is it that much more complicated now that it's more systemic? It feels more systemic. Yeah. Somehow was James' time, was your father's time, was it simpler somehow to rise, do you think? Yeah, I would, I would never say it was simpler so as not to diminish um, what people in that generation did to recover, so many of them. But I will also say that as each generation moves through, the systemic nature of the trouble gets even more and more interwoven so that that, it's almost like we're surrounded, like not all of us, some of us are surrounded by a web that it is impossible to hack our way through to the other side. And like with each generation, that web gets thicker and thicker and more impermeable. And, I, and I'm hoping, as you are, that events this year will lead to us finding new tools to get rid of those webs and just open the space so that people can move freely in the direction they're meant to move in. So I I know that people in my father's generation bristle when when they're told they have privilege. I do know that because I think that if you grow up with your 10 siblings or your 9 siblings in a one-room shack with no bathroom and you pick cotton in the morning and you pick it in the afternoon, that does not feel like privilege. But then I think it's worse now for people who are living it now. Right. I I agree. I don't want to diminish the 
momentous effort that went into, um, you know, even, you know, the wave of immigrants that came here um, and established Mm -hmm. themselves and like my grandmother and, you know, couldn't speak English. So she cooked for a catering company. And every time I'm in the kitchen, I feel as though I resonate with this cellular memory that you spoke of. And I really am Mm -hmm. so glad that you have held this up um, because it, it is fortifying. It is strengthening. And mm-hmm. hopefully those of us which, who I think now can, now can easily acknowledge that we've experienced privilege will hold the space for other people to walk through mm-hmm. and as you may be the people they're meant to be. I'm so glad you articulated that so well. Um, you, your own story picks up. You, you've just mentioned your father, Kelly Blanton, um, and his, his um, one of the versions, and I love the storytelling moment and the energy of it, but you, you, know, you, you talk about there was one episode for him, right? The defining, he, his okay. buddy, um, the, the buddy okay. is also got a, an enormous family, seven kids, as people did mm-hmm. then. Um, Noreen in the book, um, you know, a character who's in one of the photographs, she's got like 13 kids. She's never been married mm-hmm. and they're all from different daddies and, and different um, skin colors. So, you know, there's just a, a kind of a scale that we're also not used to. But in any case, because um, it's very pre-birth control, pre-concept <laughs> population. Um, but so here's Buddy's father, and um, Buddy is a friend of your your father, Kelly. And mm-hmm. I love that your, your name, Shelley, sort of re- resonates with Kelly. <laughs> but, but then he's got to, Buddy's father is drinking. And the bad part about the drinking, um, maybe it could be tolerated, but the problem is it siphons off the few pennies that the family actually has that they need to have food. And so Mm -hmm. the father has to be deposited 30 miles down the road so that he can leave the family. And the mother declares this. So your father and Buddy and his Buddy's father go 30 miles down the road and they drop him off, God knows where, and they, they leave him there. And this is the kind of, right, survivalist um, episode or, you know, unimaginable to us, but it puts into such sharp focus the necessity, the need that, you know, was so much more dramatic than um, than what we experience now. I I think this book is a huge invitation. You'd, you'd feel as though from our conversation that it's oppressive. It is not at all because it's just <laughs> fascinating exploration. There's lots of um, detail and lightness in the story too that, you know, really helps balance all of this um, ballast that you're, you know, acquiring through this historical um, you know, entry into what these these people experienced. Um, and so, Shelley, everyone will want to know if this story is autobiographical, and we've touched on it a bit <laughs> with your previous generation. I was uh, myself wondering, and so I thought I'd give um, people just a bit of um, biography of you, if you don't mind. Shelley Blanton Stroud um, grew up in California's Central Valley, the daughter of Dust Bowl immigrants who made good on their ambition to get out of the field. 
She teaches college writing in Northern California and consults with writers in the energy industry. She co-directs Stories on Stage in uh, Stories on Stage Sacramento, where actors perform the stories of established and emerging authors, and serves on the advisory board of 916 Inc., an arts-based creative writing nonprofit for children. She's also served on the Writers Advisory Board for the Belize Writers Academy, and before all that, wore a series of polyester uniforms in service yeah. at the Dervener <laughs> Schnitzel H. Salt Seafood Galley and Wendy's Old Fashioned Hamburgers. Copy Boy is her first <laughs> novel. Her second, Trophies, will be published by She Writes Press in fall of 2021. Mm-hmm. She and her husband live in Sacramento with an aging beagle and many photos of their out-of-state sons whom they miss way too much. Um, let, let's correct. touch on, let's touch on, yes, I'm sure I, I'm aware of that feeling, especially now. This, um, mm-hmm. one thing I wanted to mention, pull from this, um, this, this story's on stage, Sacramento. Do you think that mm-hmm. enact, enacting stories physically and with voice has helped you develop such an acute ear for dialogue because it's very present and sharp in this book. Has it helped you? Well, thank you. I, I have to say first, I've only been doing the co-directing with Dorothy Rice for one year, but I've been a fan and attendee for 10 years. And it is a magical thing to see um, actors perform a story because you you just get an, an entirely new way of experiencing it. Almost always it's magical. Every now and then in the audience it occurs to you, wow, I love to read that story, but I don't love to see it performed because so much of it is maybe really a lot of description or internal philosophical thought. And so that part, you know, really being an audience member at Stories on Stage Sacramento for 10 years before co-directing it really put me in mind of the question of how can you reveal thought, ideas, concepts, philosophies without bogging down? And really, I think that's a big part of what draws me to mystery writing and crime writing is because I... In the best of it, I think character and ideas are revealed in action. And, um, and that happens a lot in crime writing. I don't know if people who don't read it aren't aware. They think it's just formulaic or that, that everything is predictably fast-moving or something like that. I, I found in the, in the crime novels I read, what I love the most is how succeeding events reveal more and more until at the end of the book, you just think, aha, I have to read it again to more fully get it. So that to me is kind of related to the acting part of it, that I want my, when I'm reading, I want my heart to race sometimes. I want to hear that person's voice in my head. I I will tell you about that voice part. I've had an astonishing experience recently of um, my audiobook version of this has just finished. It won't be distributed for a little bit, but the 
experience of listening to my narrator, April Doty at Find Away Voices, perform the, the novel, it just, it had me crying in many places. And I'm not saying crying at the sad parts, but crying at the recognition of that's who that voice is. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the book, when she gives one character, I won't say who, of an old person's voice because they're aged. Oh, my gosh, I just was delivered. And I, I realized that, that even though I love the solitude of writing and I love the solitude of reading, in truth, I love the communion of that energy of performance. And that's part of the reason why I do love audiobooks so, so much. It, it seems yes. kind of intimate. Yes, absolutely, Shelley. There's an interchange. There's an exchange of energy. And I think on the page here, there's a lot of energy exchanged through the emotion of the characters, which is the gift of writing. We just don't see it as much uh, or hear it as much as when it's audio. I love that you walk the walk and you tell the story through the action. When we come back, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to hear about Trophies, which is the upcoming book, and um, find out a little bit about whether we're going to have some more suspense with Shelley Blanton's trial. <laughs> Don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Shelley Blanton-Stroud, author of a new book called Copy Boy. We were just talking about crime writing and how it's infiltrated, um, how Didion and Hemingway have infiltrated. It's a, it's a book with a lot of clarity and yet many layers. So that's a difficult um, balance to achieve. It's been done with great authority in this book. I've enjoyed it enormously. You can find Shelley Blanton Stroud on Facebook, Blanton Stroud author, Twitter, Blanton Stroud, and Instagram. Um, and, and Jane is the protagonist of Copyboy. She is the copyboy, the lowliest of the low at the bench, at the newspaper. And um, But of course, she breaks through those barriers. And this is another thing that I love about Jane. Uh, so Shelley, you write, she crossed so many borders, expecting someone to stop her, though, though no one did. 
No one ever stopped her. And I loved this idea, like, had she become invisible? How did she slip through? But I know that sensation of you're standing there and you're thinking to yourself, how did I get through to this? That's kind of an amazing thing. Um, uh, and we, we are uh, mentioning that there is going to be a second book called Trophies, uh, published by mm-hmm. She Writes Press next year. Is Jane among the characters or is it any kind of a sequel or what's up with that? Well, I will say that I, I have pretty much decided that there will be other Jane books. I'm going to let her age. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll jump ahead even 10 years at a time in her career in San Francisco if San Francisco changes. But this next book is not that. It's something that I'd written before I turned this one into She Writes. And I'm, I'm really working with it. I've got, you know, I've got a, what I really have is a big, fat, terrible mess right now that needs work but it's a terrible mess that I kind of love so um, Mm -hmm. when I'm done you know ushering a copy boy into the world I'm really going to settle in with this one and and do some sorting cool but this Um, one this one is very different very different uh, uh uh-huh okay well the big mess is, I'm, I'm just, you know, I can't wait because out of this big gelatinous <laughs> mess, it's going to come this sharp rock, this really <laughs> gorgeous gem, I can tell. You talk about Jane and, um, you know, you, you've just mentioned that Jane might skip ahead a decade because she's got, you know, like five decades to go in this, in, you know, she yeah. does stay in the newspaper world. And she, her, one of her... Um, Thoughts in the book is uh, a quote from Jane. Identity was, well, a quote from Shelley. Identity was a decision subject to timing, not a solid fact after all. Jane, of course, then she needed to invent herself and reinvent herself over and over again. And she did so without apologies. Um, This made her a fascinating character, not to mention a pioneering woman. Um, And I I do love her observations so that when we're talking about a very serious time in the history of this country, the Great Depression, and how people transcended it, she observes things like uh, another quote from Shelley Blanton Stroud. She looked around at the packed bar full of men of an athletic shape and the beautiful women who followed them. So Jane is so self-aware here. She, we all know this place, but she was only 18. And how did she get so wise beyond her years? Um, it's just such a, a fascinating type of character, right? They're hewn very closely very early on in life, right? I mean. Yeah. And then, but I feel like I got away with a little something because one wonders how old Jane is when she's writing it. You know, like if I describe my childhood stories, I would hope they would have all kinds of funny, self-deprecating humor in them and insight about what that meant. But when I was eight years old, I don't think they were in there. <laughs> Those mm-hmm. insights weren't. So, you know, I when we're all, uh, I think stories a fascinating thing, particularly family story or personal story, because. We're always editing it. We're honing it. We're shaving off the parts that don't do a service. And so by the time we tell it to somebody else, it kind of looks smart, though maybe it wasn't in the original. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, she's very human, though, Jane. She, you know, she's got a lot of the third deferred thought processes. She, you know, she'll figure it out later what's going on, like her relationship with her father, which was just an exquisite relationship and fraught with paradox and contradictions, the kind, the likes of which we all have. She has uh, also a reconciliation with her mother, um, who manipulated her emotionally for so many years. And I think that this idea of Jane. You know, her mother talks about keeping her hand on the plow um, for the sake of moving forward. You had to keep moving forward and you'd figure everything out kind of later on. And and that is so human. Um, You also talk about um, another characteristic that I really love this description about the American dream, the outlaw life. Um, It's the American dream to be the best, be great, jump over the rules, Rules are for the other guy. And I thought to myself, well, that reminds me of someone very familiar sitting in the Oval (laughs) Office. And I really feel like this phenomenon of this American dream and and leaping over boundaries, right? It's part of the texture. It's like it's a part of the DNA of the country, wouldn't you say? I I definitely think so. I mean, our entire history from the get-go is about crossing boundaries. Some we should have, some perhaps not. And, and that's part of what, what uh, I really wanted to get at, that I admire my character, Jane. I love her gumption and her courage about just going out there and doing what she wants to do. But I'm not stupid. And I know that that gumption and that grit and that assertiveness does not always lead to good things. And I, I think that that's very American. You know, mm-hmm. we're an innovative, inventive, go get them kind of culture or have been. And, and sometimes it serves us well. And sometimes we just need to slow down and reflect. And reflect. I, I feel that Jane is very American that way. Right. The the reflection and the sort of assessment and, you know, our ability to, to look at ourselves and really take a good stock of ourselves. Um, it's it's we're having maybe that moment now. And I think that mm-hmm. one of the other um, issues that you explore is the exploitation of poverty for gratuitous emotion, because the photographs mm-hmm. in, in the copy boy, um, they um they're not what they appear. I'm not going to give spoiler alerts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not what they appear. So, you know, so we twist the situation, right, to evoke the most response. It's like a kind of mm-hmm. sensationalism. And um, I wondered, you know, if you felt, you know, it, clearly Dorothea Lang is not doing that with her photographs, right? They're straight yeah. up. Yeah. She doesn't right. capitalize on her polio, um, which is something that she yeah. shared with your mother. Um, it's a much more authentic uh, being. Um, and you, you talk about, does anyone present a pure naked self to the world? And I think that's a great takeaway. Um, but you've kind of put it out there in this book, Shelley. It, would you, do you feel that when you, you kind of, you know, hear it on audiobook and, do you have that sense? Mm-hmm. It is kind of it is kind of authentic and naked, wouldn't you say? That's what I'm aiming at. And you know, you know this, Diane, as an author, you never perfectly get there. 
you know, you can hear something or read something and think, oh, if I'd had another year, (laughs) (laughs) I might have done this right, but it might never have gotten done at all. But um, I am happy that I tried to be as honest as I could about my characters. And it was, uh, you know, many friends helped me with that. I have one friend that I've known an awfully long time. Her name is Casey. And when she read the previous draft of this, she put it down and she said, you have to be nicer to mama. And because Mm -hmm. I think that I, I let mama be a lot more villainous originally because I have a tendency. I don't know how to explain it. I feel kind of guilty about it. When I first write, I write every character to the very edge of their villainous possibility. I can't help making everybody as bad as they could be. And then when I get that on the page, I have to go back and say, now use some grace. Who, Who are these individuals? What motivates them? Why did they do that? Where can we find the empathy with them? And it took me the longest with Mama for reasons I think you can imagine having read the end of the book. But she pointed out, you know, she pointed out, you're not being generous enough to her. And and having readers, you know, having beta readers respond honestly really helps you to be more honest if you listen to them. Well, no one's black and white, and none of the characters in this book are either, because you took that full spin around the front, the back, and the middle. I'm glad that you, you know, you you did go into their um, beings. And look, we've got a big mishmash, you know, in each of us. Um, it's hard mm-hmm. to write mishmash, but you know, you you've gotten you finally, ultimately, you delivered complex characters um, that we could still understand their motivations and still respond, repulse, attract um, to them. I I really just um, would encourage anyone to get their hands on this book, Copy Boy by Shelley Blanton Stroud. Um, we're closing now in a few moments. I I did want to say that, you know, after the passage you read, I'm going to read part of the epilogue because it's, it comes mm-hmm. back to what you read. It's a quote mm-hmm. from Shelley Planton Stroud. You think you're a body, but you're not. You're the power inside of it. You get that power from your voice. It was complicated. It still is. I haven't worked it all out. And I did become someone. Rewriting that story the right way understanding that I would move from point to point on an infinite continuum. That's, that's Jane's interior dialogue. I'm sorry that our time has run out, but I would urge everyone to use their power and like Jane, lift up those with less of a voice through her voice. Thank you, Shelley Blanton Stroud, for the power of your storytelling and its worldview. You can find her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And the book Copy Boy is available wherever books are sold. Till next week, everyone, stay strong. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our amazing amazing engineers, Matt Widener, and our producer, Robert Cialino. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.